The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to have with us this afternoon Dr. Norton Wheeler, Associate Professor at Missouri Southern State University. We're very delighted to have him with us today because the book that we're going to talk about, The Role of American NGOs in China's Modernization, is especially important to us at the National Committee. Nordy chose the National Committee as one of the three organizations to highlight as a case study in his book along with two other organizations that we're delighted to be in company with, the Nanjing Hopkins Program and the 1990 Institute. Your book covers a lot of different issues, but it seems to me that one of the key themes, or probably the key theme, is the phrase that you use that I actually hadn't heard before, invited influence. Mm -hmm. In fact, it really, if you give the full name of your book, uh, it's the role of American NGOs in China's modernization, sort of colon, invited influence. And I wonder if you can explain that phrase. What does it mean just in overall? Is it a phrase in international relations theory, or is it something you made up, or where does it come from first, and what do you mean by it? Well, the latter for sure, and the former, you know, every author hopes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it will become more widely adopted. But I've had a few people who were enthusiastic uh, about it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. What it its its origin is that it's a counterpoint to other ways of framing uh, heuristically the bilateral relationships, in particular, the notion of cultural imperialism, that for a more developed country like the United States to have an influence on some less developed country must be a case of uh, cultural imperialism, a forced. You know, or imposed values, you know, structures, ways of organizing a society. What I observed as I studied, you know, my little corner of the relationship, the non-governmental exchanges, was that the Chinese, whether it was the government or quasi-governmental institutions or the growing body of, you know, societal actors, non-governmental organizations, uh, was that they were actively seeking inputs from Western countries, uh, particularly the United States, although not to uncritically uh, adopt what they saw, but to uh, pick what they could use. At the beginning of your book, you set out in your introduction a number of questions. So I just want to freely steal from those. Um, And one of the first you ask is what the motivations are on the part of NGOs. So I know that those vary quite widely depending on the NGO, depending on what century we're talking about, Mm -hmm. depending on a whole lot of things. But were there any motivations that seemed to overlap through all three of the institutions you studied or that you found were true of what you saw in China as a whole? Yeah, a couple that that seem to be common to these three organizations and most, but not all, but most others are first a desire to 
improve, smooth out, lubricate you know, the bilateral relationship between the United States and China to keep it from becoming a confrontational kind of relationship as China you know, continues to, to develop and grow economically and, and in other ways uh, expand its, its global influence. And uh, also to uh, expose people in both countries to the culture and society of the others, but, but in, in, in particular from the U.S. side to expose up-and-coming Chinese future leaders, future important people in all, in all sectors of society. I, I know you had explained to me when, during one of our many interviews that, uh, that, that Art Rosen, uh, was he the first or president? No, well, no. No, no, it's Scalapino. Okay. Well, Scalapino was the first chairman. It gets complicated. An early leader. An early leader. uh, Was noticed that uh, even though a lot of Iranian students were in the United States, that they seemed to just uh, isolate themselves and not be exposed to American society and were, you know, cheering the hostage taking and all that. And he said, well, you know, as Chinese students, begin coming, we should uh, work toward a different end. And uh, so and I, I think those those two things, at, at a minimum, are, are common across these three and other organizations. And do you think motivations have changed over the years, or motivations or even attitudes on the part of the both givers and receivers? Yeah, there I think it, it may depend on which organization, which group of people you're talking about. For example, at the Hopkins Nanjing Center, the, uh, from everyone I talked to and everything I read, it was clear that on both sides, students, uh, American students who went to study with Chinese professors at the Hopkins Nanjing program in, on Nanjing University's campus, or Chinese students who enrolled to study with American and, some, and later other international professors, on both sides, the motivation shifted from being primarily a cultural exchange to being much more instrumental and career-oriented, uh, and a lot of that had to do with what was happening economically in, in China as it uh, you know, developed foreign trade and foreign in, in investment relationships. Uh, the, another significant change that's influenced some some motivations, of course, has been the collapse of the Soviet Union, which uh, in the uh, 1970s uh, was a, a common, uh, presented a common challenge to the United States and China, so there was a significant security motivation. Today, if anything, there's a little more security tension in the relationship in the South China Sea, so... so and probably some other things have, have evolved, too. One area that was of particular interest to me that you touch on, the relationship between the nonprofit organizations and both the U.S. government and the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Uh, did Was that the same for all three organizations that you looked at, or did they did that um, differ? There were, there were significant similarities, and... Um, one, you know, one question that I was ready for if somebody asked me was what surprised me in my research. And one of the, besides uh, uh, coming to the realization that Chinese Americans played a very significant role, the other thing that surprised me was how, how, how close uh, 
the involvement was in many cases between the U.S. government and some of these organizations, although that was le less true for the 1990 Institute, and that has to do with their specific origins and the, the outlook of the, of, of the founders. They wanted to keep it ex explicitly apolitical, non-political, uh, so they, they liked having former government officials like the trade ambassador Linda Tsao Yang, who you know, was and maybe still is one of the you know, directors of, of that organization. And uh, they, through a, f a friendship, uh, they were able to have meetings at the Federal Reserve Bank building in San Francisco. But for the most part, they didn't take funding uh, from the government. And uh, they, at one time, several of the scholars that they were working with, you know, provided testimony for some U.S. government hearings. But they, so they were more separated in their relationship with the U.S. government, both the National Committee and John, the Hopkins and Nanjing Center for Chinese and American Studies. Over the years, have uh, you know, kind of yo-yoed a little bit, but and, and I think never as much as half of their funding coming from the U.S. government, but rarely as little as 10 percent either. And uh, and in both cases, a lot like yourself, a lot of uh, the same with uh, officials with Hopkins and Nanjing Center. Many people cycled through the Foreign Service and other other arms of the, the government and, and, and back to government in some cases. What's your biggest takeaway from this, or what do you want your readers to take away as the most important aspect of all these years and research and effort that you've put into this. Yeah. Well, I I think it might be a this this invited influence framework for thinking about and you know analyzing the the relationship uh, as you know because you you had a chapter uh, in the 1987 collection about exchanges that brought the history of the National Committee up to that point. And it, it's, it's difficult to write contemporary history because things keep changing. And my book ends with a little anecdote about uh, Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, apparent, uh, you know, at that time, ascent to, uh, you know, to the... Uh, presidency, and I, I found myself actually rooting for him because I because the manuscript was baked and I couldn't change it. <laughs> and I figured, well, some review, if he doesn't get it, some reviewer will be sure to note that. Um, but it also ends on a, a, a note of uncertainty about where the relationship's going to go. But I think that the organizations like the National Committee uh, have played a vital role that, that outside the community of scholars isn't as widely understood as our other dimensions of the relationship, uh, such as popular culture going both ways, uh, business, you know, everything from uh, again, trade to investment, and of course formal diplomacy, including, uh, including the military. So, and, but, but that the way that interaction is taking place is not one-sided in the way that uh, it tended more to be, let's say, a century ago, where there was a much more unequal power relationship, and you know, whether it was the government or business or missionaries who um, did, did 
played a, stood in a less equal relationship to their Chinese partner. So I, I guess it's a way of a framework for analyzing the relationship as it goes forward, hopefully uh, in salutary directions. I want to get back to that in a second, but your reference to Xi Jinping, the current president of China, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that listeners to the podcast might know what you're referring to in terms of his experience here. You okay. want to well, explain that? His, uh, yeah, she's uh, father, she, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Uh, had uh, visited the United States uh, under the auspices of the National I, I in fact, traveled with him for three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, and... a very uh, impressive man. Yeah, and in my longer talk, I'll have a little, you know, some slide, you know, one slide of him and then a couple of uh, Xi Xi Jinping's later, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, visit back. But, so, his father had participated in a National Committee Organized Exchange uh, she himself, in, that was in 1985, right. had visited my home state, Iowa, long, um, a, as part of an exchange organized on the U.S. side by the Iowa Sister Cities organization, mm-hmm. I think it was. And then he had a, just before his, his election or so selection to the presidency, he had returned uh, to Iowa, in particular to Muscatine, and to meet with Laupangyo old friends, and uh, it was all over the front page of the Muscatine newspaper. So, uh, so if there's some validity to the notion that uh, these ex- people-to-people exchanges, uh, non-governmental exchanges, can improve the relationship, we, we would, those of us who are optimists, would hope to see that in. Uh, uh, manifest over time uh, during Xi Jinping's uh, term of office, but that remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. And the other thing that remains to be seen harkens back to the penultimate question we were talking about uh, in terms of attitudes and changes. And it's one thing to have China back in the 1970s, 80s, even 90s willing to be looking, inviting influence in. Mm-hmm. Now that China has established itself in terms of its economic power, mm-hmm. its growing security power, its attempt at soft power around the world, I would argue slightly, in your book, you give it a more positive cast than I Oh, think you think so? Maybe test. I was too subtle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the case... But with China's growing influence domestically, internationally, do you think there will still be opportunities for this kind of exchange and to have it cast in the words you use, invited influence? Or will the Chinese say, okay, <laughs> we've had enough invited influence. We're now going out to influence others. Well, I think, well, the kinds of, let's say the kinds of influences that they seek, are, are we, is, I agree with you, are certainly changing. And I think in the case of the National Committee, that's probably reflected in uh, a return, really, to the primary emphasis being being on education, right? Public education, mm-hmm. although in the early years, in the late 1960s, that was just in the United States, now right. in China as well. Um, the uh, you know all these organizations have have evolved with the Hopkins Nanjing Center. The biggest change has been they've added a, a graduate program. I think what you're getting at, I think, is definitely valid and is maybe most clearly reflected in changes in the 1990 Institute, 
which started out uh, organizing research on economic reforms. First, first project, uh, they were founded in 1990, and they sought to uh, tone down some of the anti-regime rhetoric by Chinese Americans in the United States and work towards some gradual economic reform that might you know, lead to general societal liberalization. But uh, So they organized uh, first binational research teams in different working in different sectors of uh, the, the economy, agriculture, industry, etc. And then in another phase they had specialized uh, research projects, uh, each one done by either an individual American scholar or a group of American scholars. But over time, partly because the people who had the most ability in, in economics were getting older and stepping away from the organization, but also because China had developed a lot of that capacity on its own. They shifted more toward direct action, social projects, things like uh, funding education for girls in the countryside, and most recently a fairly large-scale uh, microfinance project. And you know, so those kinds of things, you know, contributing contributions to the social safety net seem to still be welcome, uh, including uh, in, in, including the, uh, the how-to part of that, organizational ideas. But you're right, the, the needs and interests on the Chinese side have certainly evolved, and where, where they'll go, I, I don't want to speculate. And how Americans will involve we will evolve along with the the Chinese. It's as you say, time will tell, and maybe you'll write a, um, a follow up to this twenty years from now, and we'll know the answer to that question. But in the meantime, we very much appreciate you doing this podcast, and for those who've enjoyed it, you can also see a longer version on our website. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jen. Enjoyed it.